0: Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by the Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In our very first episode, we are joined by Matthew Olson, Chief Trust and Security Officer at Uber. Until just recently, he taught a course in counterterrorism here at UVA. Previously, he had led the Guantanamo Review Task Force, served as general counsel at the NSA, and was appointed director of the National Counterterrorism Center by President Barack Obama. We start off the interview with a few questions from associate producer Shay Kearns. Yes,
1: yeah, so I just wanted to start again by thank you for joining us. Sure. And uh, like Josh mentioned uh, before we started recording, we want to take somewhat of a timeline through your career, um, starting with um, you being the leader of the task force to close Guantanamo. Uh, so with that, um, I'm curious about um, what, do you thought, what you thought some of the biggest challenges were in that position in terms of what impediments you, um, uh, impediments arised and kept you from achieving said goal and whether or not those challenges were structural or potentially adaptive. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So this was I took on this role in 2009 Mm -hmm. when President Obama came into office. It was, uh, you know, it was one of the commitments that uh, President Obama made during the campaign uh, that uh, Guantanamo was uh, something that should be closed. And uh, you know, before that, I'd been in the Department of Justice for a long time, for mm. several years, both as a federal prosecutor and then as an official in the National Security Division. So I knew a fair bit about the the challenges of Guantanamo and and who was there. The, you know, I think that uh, that going into that into that uh, effort in 2009, there was a real consensus. People don't realize what a consensus there was at that time about. The importance of closing Guantanamo. It was really not something that was considered politically controversial. Both presidential candidates, uh, both Senator McCain and Senator Obama, during their campaigns, talked about closing Guantanamo. That it had been, you know, it had been previously viewed as a sort of a legal black hole that didn't work. Um, you know that it that it had become a propaganda tool for Al Qaeda. They were showing people in their propaganda wearing orange jumpsuits, and so. Um, it, 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 and it, I guess the other aspect, it had become a, a real source of friction with our allies, particularly in Europe, who were very opposed to Guantanamo from a human rights perspective, and it interfered with our ability to cooperate with uh, our allies on counterterrorism. So, consensus to close it in 2009. The issue was that that consensus quickly uh, disappeared mm-hmm. in, uh, once President Obama came into office. Um now I was responsible for leading a task force that looked at all of the detainees at the time uh there were 240 now that's a substantial uh, reduction from several hundred that had been there uh, and been released under president, under president bush so the vast majority of those who had been at Guantanamo had already been released that left 240 uh detainees and our job was to look at them and to put them into basically Appropriate buckets whether they could be transferred whether they should be prosecuted or whether they should be continually continue to be held under the laws of war and There were a couple myths um, About Guantanamo one myth was that they were the worst of the worst That mm-hmm. just wasn't true um, Most of them were not the worst of the worst some were you know significant uh, Post significant threats mm-hmm. particularly those like for example the in, the individuals who were um Charged with the 9 11 conspiracy, Khli Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, fair enough. Worst of the worst. So that, but most of them there, in the 240 were, you know, um, a lot of them were Yemenis who had gone to Afghanistan to fight uh, in the jihad and uh, before 9 11. And then after 9 11, they got picked up, mm-hmm. um, you know, fleeing the bombs in, in Tora Bora. So they weren't the worst of the worst. But the other myth was that they were all innocent farmers who had been swept up. That also wasn't true. Um, You know, there was a kind of the other side of this was that they should, none of them should have been there. You know, that turned out not, you know, not to be true as well. A lot of them were, uh, most of them were lawfully held under the laws of war as enemy combatants. They had been fighting uh, on behalf of Al-Qaeda or the Taliban, and they were lawfully held so the question was really to do a more careful analysis who continued to pose a threat here in you know, seven, eight years after 9-11. So that was the background. Now, the problem was really political. That's what stopped us from being successful in closing Guantanamo. We were successful in looking at all the detainees and bucketing them, but the politics around Guantanamo were really so difficult because we really didn't have uh, a consensus anymore about the importance of closing Guantanamo or what we could do. In terms of uh, transferring them, uh, if we had the if we had decided that they that they didn't pose a significant risk, in particular, um, transferring them to the United States, there was no support yeah. for that.
1: So I remember reading about a pretty contentious meeting you had with I believe it was Congressman Wolf. Um, was that in two thousand nine or two thousand ten? You recall? Yeah, that was in two
2: thousand. Uh, uh, Eleven Was that all the way in 2011? Yeah, okay. because I, it, it, it was in the—or maybe it was 2010. It might have been 2010.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. And at that point, I know that he was one of the large voices um, in Congress pushing back against bringing any detainees into the United States due to the what he thought of the threat that they posed. Um, did you feel you had support within the administration for uh, trying to achieve this goal, or did you think there was a lot of wishy-washiness on behalf of— uh, I guess we could say uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel and President Obama himself in giving you the support that you needed
2: you know, I think there was lots of support okay. and and there was ad, there was sufficient support it's for sure um at the highest levels mm-hmm. um, to closing Guantanamo and giving us you know a shot at doing that yeah the um that said there are also competing demands mm-hmm. when you're the president of the united states or you're running the white house mm-hmm. or, you know so and and guantanamo was one of the goals but it wasn't the only goal yeah. so that makes it you know the the reality of of politics and policy is that you sometimes have to pick and choose where you are going to put your political capital um, but i felt like there was a real tailwind going into 2009 to close guantanamo But as I said, the politics got very hard almost immediately in Mm -hmm. 2009, uh, and that just made it uh, not really a a plausible option, especially when um, Congress was not supportive of taking some of the steps that would be necessary to actually close it.
1: Yeah, and in that same vein, I know that you worked closely with, I believe it was special counsel to President Obama, Greg Craig, if I can remember, um, to uh, release the Uyghur detainees. And I was curious if you believe that you and uh, Greg Craig, uh, I guess, expelled too much political capital and attempting to have them released, and whether or not that hindered the subsequent non-closure of Guantanamo as a whole.
2: Yeah, so it's, it, the Uyghurs, uh, and, it, who are a, a group of Chinese Muslims, yeah. who were detained, a small number of them, I can't remember exactly how many now, you know, 15, 16, 17, um, detained at Guantanamo. It's a fascinating story. We could do a whole podcast. Yeah, on I, know. I, I don't want to get into the <laughs> rabbit right. hole. It is a huge. It's a yeah. really interesting story, though, how they ended up there. But the important thing to know is they were determined by a federal judge, and with the with the government agreeing, with the U.S. government agreeing that they were not lawfully detained. They mm-hmm. did not meet the definition of an enemy combatant. It was a real conundrum. Here they are, not lawfully detained but sitting in Guantanamo and no place to go because they couldn't be sent back to China, their home country, because they would be persecuted there. So, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of, we put a lot of effort into figuring out what to do with the Uyghurs, but we had a court order saying Mm -hmm. they don't belong at Guantanamo. And so just as a matter of the rule of law, as well as humanitarian concerns, it was right to try to figure out um, and spend a lot of effort to try to figure out what the right result was Mm -hmm. for these individuals who were not lawfully held
1: Yeah, but correct me if I'm wrong. Did you experience uh, a lot of pushback from Congress after they realized that the Uyghurs had been released? I know that there was uh, contention with bringing them into the United States in the first place. Where did that come from? Was that just a misunderstanding on behalf of the American public about the threat that they posed or the threat that all of the detainees in Guantanamo
2: posed as a whole? So uh, That's a good question, Shay. I mean, so I think... The it, it has to do with the politics around Guantanamo. Now you know, so the Uyghurs there was there was opposition from some, uh, mm-hmm. including Congressman Wolf, to releasing or transferring. It's really better to think about them being transferred into to the United States. They were not transferred to the United States. There was discussion about doing yeah. that and planning about doing that, but they ultimately weren't. Um, they were released to. There were some who had been released to Albania. There were some that who were released to from Caribbean uh, to Bermuda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, uh, you know, that those results actually were, you know, consistent with the court order. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that part of the opposition to re- transferring Uyghurs, one or two Uyghurs to the United States, was born partly of misunderstanding going back to what i said at the beginning about the worst of the worst yeah. you know painting with a broad brush every single person there mm-hmm. there's just it's a long way from khalid sheikh muhammad to yeah. the uyghurs mm-hmm. absolutely and
1: i guess just to wrap up this portion of our interview i was curious because obviously um it never uh bringing ksm into the united states for trial never occurred so i am curious what your opinion on uh, trying suspected terrorists in federal court Uh, was then and whether or not that's changed today
2: so another question we could spend an hour talking about (laughs) so So that's a good question Um, so I'll say this you know Khalid Sheikh Mohammed the other 9-11 co-conspirators we are uh, 2018 Mm -hmm. 17 years from 9-11 we don't have a trial date in the military commissions there's no prospect uh, of a trial anytime soon if those individuals had been tried in federal court in 2009 2010 had been charged they would their trial would have long been over um, I, they would have in all likelihood been convicted and sentenced at this point and we would have had justice mm-hmm. for the the 9/11 families and victims mm-hmm. uh, the fact that we don't is a um, it's an, an enormous stain on our counterterrorism efforts and a failure of policy makers to to uh, an abject failure of policymakers makers to leave that case in the military commission absolutely well
1: again i wish we had an hour or more to have this discussion yeah. but i really appreciate you answering the sure. questions candidly yeah. Yeah. Sorry Good to questions. To Josh.
0: so we wanted to to move on to uh to more of your experience with the nsa and the intel community writ large uh so you have a wealth of experience at uh, you know a number of different federal government agencies uh when do you feel the interagency process uh, succeeds, either within the IC or within the federal government at large, and when does it fail?
2: That's a, that's kind of a big, broad question. I like the question. I mean, it's uh, you know the interagency process, uh, and, and particularly the intelligence community process, succeeds when uh, it is you know it has certain characteristics. It's you know inclusive. It um, emphasizes information sharing, and most importantly, it, uh, it uh, places a premium on its ultimate goal or ultimate mission of uh, truth-telling and speaking truth to power and brings, dis- brings information to decision-makers that provides an advantage to our decision-makers over our adversaries. That's really the goal of the intelligence. It's not, you know, intelligence officials will be very careful to say we're not the policymaker. We 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 collect information, we analyze it, and we share it and present it. And if we do all of those things in an apolitical way, and we are effective at collecting information, we're smart about analyzing it, we are clear about presenting it, uh, then that process of interagency intelligence work is successful. Where it doesn't do those things, it's you know it's less successful. And where it fails fundamentally, uh, whether it is to you know fails to collect information, fails to um, you know bring a variety of viewpoints in analyzing it, or worst of all, uh, fails to uh, present that information in a way that's apolitical and that lacks fidelity to the truth, uh, uh, then then it then it fails uh, you know most fundamentally.
0: And just in the, I guess, in the broadest sense, how has the how has the whole process changed, particularly in the twenty first century? I know we, in, you know, have spoken in the past about, you know, the the changing technological landscape.
2: So the, you know, the from I know most about the intelligence world from the counterterrorism perspective. So I'll speak about it through that lens, because um, there there really has been a fundamental change uh, in the way. The counterterrorism community operates from before 9-11, so this century versus the last. Uh, the, the primary way is the level of cooperation and collaboration on counterterrorism that exists within that community. And by that community, I mean both intelligence agencies as well as the Department of Justice and uh, the military. Um, you know, that was one of the key insights of the 9-11 commission is that you know, there had been this basic failure to share information where the FBI had some information, the CIA had some information about Al Qaeda and particularly its presence in the United States and didn't really share that information. So now there's an absolute imperative to share information and to work collaboratively. And where I was at the National Counterterrorism Center was really the organizational embodiment of that idea where we had our half our workforce were detailed um, from other agencies, so they were sent over to work for a year or two at NCTC Um, we had access to all the information it wasn't you know we didn't have to kind of ask permission to look at um, intelligence reporting or military information it all came into one place which is it is a
0: branch of the uh, office of the director of national intelligence right
2: and we were part of the the office of the director of national intelligence or odni Um, and we had uh, and 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 i uh, as the director reported both to the OD, to the DNI, but I also reported, I was dual-headed and reported directly to the president uh, for the purpose of operational planning, counterterrorism planning. So when it came to hard problems, the White House would often often look to us to conduct strategic planning on how to solve those problems.
0: So I, I wanted to follow up with regard to intelligence sharing, but in uh, on the international scale. So, I mean, you are a, uh, a Harvard-trained lawyer, and you, you teach at Harvard. Um, with regard to... Don't hold that against me, please. <laughs> uh, with regard to the five eyes, so us, Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, you know, it's widely reported that we share an enormous amount of uh, foreign intelligence uh, that each of the respective countries collect with one another. I know that you've been part of those discussions, so the reason I preface the question with the fact that you're a lawyer, you know you, you have, you're bound to protect... Uh, certain uh, I guess certain peoples uh, especially American citizens right uh, and you you know you 've sworn oaths to protect the Constitution on numerous occasions i 'm sure uh, do you feel that the five eyes relationship does that in any way circumvent congressional oversight with respect to the practice of sharing intelligence do you see any um, I guess uh, Moral or ethical conundrums in that practice.
2: Yeah, so so for your listeners to you know understand the the and then I'll answer the question with a little bit of background on the five eyes. So five eyes i's, is really the five English speaking countries. Um, so it's the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the United Kingdom. Um, and there's a tradition um, that is you know well um, well established among those five countries. To share uh, intelligence information um, and share it more closely and act in more, uh, you know, cl- more collaboratively than really we do with any other country or certain, any other association of countries. So you'll often hear about sharing of information among the Five Eyes. Now, there's a you know obviously historic reason we share values, we share um, culture, and we share, in most instances, instances uh, national security interests. You know, our interests are well aligned. So in the in the general practice, it's a, an incredibly successful association where we benefit enormously from sharing uh, resources, sharing collections, sharing intelligence information. Um, so that when, say for example, we were we, if we were concerned about an, a, a threat in the Philippines, you know we would look to our, our Australian partners to help us because they have the geographic uh, you know proximity to the Philippines and and have capabilities there that, that we may not so it saves resources and it's uh, and it's been an, again enormously successful so your question kind of goes to the, the idea that um, you know because we have this close sharing do we and at the same time there are limitations some of the critical limitations about that imply to our intelligence community uh, go to, the protection of U.S. citizens, U.S. persons' privacy and civil liberties. So the, the, the Constitution, statutes like the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, regulations like the Executive Order 12333, all pro- provide limitations on what the U.S. intelligence community can do in collecting information that involves U.S. citizens. So the, the bottom line is, and I've, I've practiced this, I've worked in this area, I've seen it. That we, as the, as the United States intelligence community, cannot and do not ask another organization, particularly another Five Eyes intelligence organization, to carry out intelligence activities that we ourselves would not be able to do under the rules that apply to us.
0: Now, say hypothetically a United States you know, presidential administration wanted to gather information with regard to domestic matters, you know, collecting information on U.S. citizens in the United States but didn't would, was not willing to go so far as to have the NSA collect that information itself, say, turn to, you know, uh, the U.K. for that information. Would that be something that is currently illegal under law, or could that be achieved through the Five Eyes or other intelligence-sharing processes? Are so, there any legal boundaries?
2: Yeah, so... You know, first, there is certainly is a legal boundary to the U.S. intelligence agencies uh, conducting surveillance in the United States. That's covered by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, criminal statutes, um, and the Constitution. That is you know, generally prohibited, un- except under very specific circumstances involving, uh, you know, court orders. Um, so it, it 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 is also would be prohibited. Uh, it would be prohibited by law for the U.S. government to ask another agency in another country to for to carry out the same activity on its behalf
0: let's say new zealand voluntarily turned over the evidence without us actually asking you know much like you know if a whistleblower gives a journalist information that's different than the journalist requesting the information
2: yeah so if information was was presented by another intelligence service to the United States, you know, you'd have to look at that on a case-by-case basis and see what that the circumstances surrounding that. Um, there would be procedures, sometimes referred to as minimization procedures, that would apply to protect the privacy rights and interests of the U.S. person that might be implicated in that. Um, it is the kind of scenario that, you know, you know, I think it's a good question, Josh, because it, it's not totally implausible to imagine, you know, that that could happen. Um, but there are rules and procedures in place. This, again, particularly minimization procedures, where information, say, was inadvertently discovered by another country and it was brought forward to the United States, they would, you know, maybe involved a threat to U.S. citizens as well. Um, so there are procedures in place to to handle that information in a way that um, limits or protects the privacy interests of the of U.S. persons who are implicated.
0: Understood. Uh, So just in, uh, with regard to time, I'm trying to be conscious that we have you for a few more minutes. I wanted to move on to your future position. You will soon be uh, taking the reins of chief security officer at Uber. Um, So, you know, there's oftentimes many requests from government of these big tech firms. That's no surprise. Uh, If the government, you know, were to request large amounts of data from Uber regarding non-U.S. persons, say, outside the U.S. or even in the U.S., how do you think you'll handle that in your new position? Is the duty to protect the privacy of Uber's customers, uh, or is it to protect, or I guess to you know, I assume you have a pretty substantial sense of duty with regards to the country. How are you t- intending to handle that?
2: Yeah, so really good question. This is my first week. I started this week. <laughs> so I'm day five here on Friday. Um, and I, my position is as the chief trust and security officer. So I have a, you know, my responsibility goes to um, the security of the information that Uber has is, is uh, data security, as well as physical security of the employees and um, and facilities, as well as to I work with others on the overall safety and security of people who use Uber, uh, whether it's the physical safety or their security of the data they turn over. Um, there's a general counsel at Uber who also looks at these issues. There are a number of other people who would look at that that question, and I actually. You know, I haven't been there long enough to know exactly what the, you know, practice and rules and policies are. Uh, but I can tell you that, you know, having been in a private company for the past few years since I left government, you know, your your obligations absolutely change. Um, not that, that we're not all U.S. citizens sitting in, you know, in, in, and I'm a U.S. citizen I, in, in the United States and I and care about our security. But, you know, I'm, uh, as an employee of a private company, you have certainly have a responsibility and I understand, and I believe, and I actually believe strongly in the importance that companies, Uber or you know any company that handles um, personal data or sensitive data, uh, protects that data as a, as a steward of that information. Um, you know that's true whether it's a social media platform like uh, Facebook or Twitter. It's true if you're a bank. You know, Bank of America is true, you know, across the board, all these companies that handle personal data, they absolutely have a duty and obligation to protect that data from being disclosed, you know, to a uh, hacker, for example, or somebody who is trying to do something illicit, um, but also to governments around the world who, who, who may seek to circumvent legal rules. Now, at the same time, you want to be a good corporate citizen and you want to cooperate where there's lawful process, and and so navigating that is really interesting and can be hard on the margins. Um, but the, you know, I think there's a fundamental point that that needs to be made about cybersecurity, and that is, you know, that, um, you know, that cybersecurity is really about privacy too, because cybersecurity is about protecting the privacy of the people who turn their data over to companies. And so that's a, a really important obligation of companies that you know more and more today are have access to and are, are being given or are collecting sensitive data about consumers.
0: So along those same lines, uh, with regard to users' data, uh, there's a, a widespread practice in Silicon Valley uh, called Warrant Canaries. I'm sure you're familiar with when a when a company receives a national security request, uh, they're not allowed to disclose that they've been subpoenaed for information. Uh, Uber, in its most recent transparency report in July, even included you know, a line that says, we have not received any request issued under the provisions of national security statutes. So, I mean, uh, uh, for the listeners who are unfamiliar with the practice, um, tech companies will put in their transparency reports a line um, to reveal when they don't receive a national security request, um, and in years when they do, they omit that information because they're not allowed to talk about it. Is this a practice that you foresee Uber continuing, uh, given your background in national security and I get you know sense of duty to country?
2: I, you know, I really don't know. I don't know enough about the practice there, um, and you know, well, I'm sure that the you know the mantra, the key is that. That it applies at Uber, it applies that the Department of Justice is to do the right thing. So I, I know that that's how we'll approach that. I think, um, you know, I think more generally, Josh, I mean, I think this issue of transparency is a really important one for, for the government and private companies together to tackle. You um, know, there's obviously attention when it comes to how, you know, being transparent. It's important, obviously, to let consumers know how their data is being used. Um, it's important for the government to talk about how data is being used, wh- how they're collecting information. Um, you see that with transparency reports coming out from the government on the use of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. There's the other side of it, which is you know, that much of intelligence work is necessarily done in secret. And so you don't want to disclose how you collect information. You don't want to disclose the targets. You know, these are sort of considered sources and methods is the term that's often used. So there's a conflict or a tension there between being transparent and protecting operational capabilities. Um, that's true when it comes to the government. It's true when it comes to you know private companies. I I think that the trend is a good one toward uh, greater transparency, where we can be more transparent. And speaking as the you know a former government person, I think the importance of transparency is twofold. One, it's the right thing to do in a democracy because it gives um, you know our citizens more information about how the government operates but it's also a pragmatic and strategic goal because it's through transparency that people gain trust and you know in, in their intelligence agencies they're acting on their behalf and it's through that trust that you gain legitimacy and the ability to operate effectively and um, so there's a real operational uh, pragmatic need to be transparent where where the government can, and, and I and I think the government's moved a long way in that direction in the last several years.
0: Great, and I have one last question um, with regard to uh, transparency and culture of Silicon Valley. I know you're a bit separated because you're still in the D.C. area, but you know, at least publicly, there's the a, quite an adversarial uh, relationship between Silicon Valley and the federal government. I think it played out in public. Um, with Apple in regard to San Bernardino and the shooting, you know, the, uh, not giving a back door right. to the shooters. the encryption iPhone. debate. So having served in, you know, very high levels of government at the NSA especially, how do you plan to address with your, you know, your colleagues now at Uber, uh, this adversarial approach? How do, you, how do you intend to kind of go at the culture of Silicon Valley, given your background?
2: Well, well, we'll see. I, you know, again, it's early days for me. But it's the key here is, I think that, uh, you know, yes, there are cultural differences. Uh, people at just Justice Department wear coats and ties. People at Uber wear jeans and T-shirts yeah. and and take their dogs to work. So there's a big cultural divide there, right? But I think it's. I think it's. It. I don't mean to be facetious, but I think there are fundamental. Parallels and similarities and commonalities between these two places, and um, while there may be, you know, the Silicon Valley is the tech world, while the government is the, you know, the uh, the world of te- of, uh, of now security and government and intelligence. At least the part I dealt with, um, but there's a there's an opportunity, and, and I think an increasing uh, support for working together. Uh, in a way that's cooperative and not adversarial. Look, encryption was a hard issue; remains a hard issue. The the San Bernardino Apple case um, was a you know an instance where those interests were not aligned, where the government sought information that was encrypted off the phone of the, one of the San Bernardino shooters. Um, that, that Apple was opposed to establishing a means to break into the phone. Um, ultimately, it was resolved, I mean, not between the two parties, but the government right. got that information. Um, I think that there's an imperative for these two communities to work together to find solutions where we can, whether that's around questions like access to data, um, and encryption, or you know, other issues that are coming down the road. The reality is that much of the world's innovation ingenuity is in the private sector and particularly in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. We ought to look for ways for the ingenuity, where appropriate, to be, uh, you know, be um, used, you know, appropriately by the government, and that's going to support our national security. and And there's no doubt that that's an interest that everybody shares.
0: All right, I think we're going to end on that note. But uh, I wanted to thank you very much for your time, and on behalf of all of the the individuals here at the Virginia Policy Review, yeah. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. And uh, have a nice weekend. Yeah, my, my
2: pleasure. My pleasure, you guys. Great. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at Review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. If you would like to contribute to our print publication, please visit us at virginiapolicyreview.org. Submissions for our fall 2018 issue are now open. We will accept submissions on a rolling basis until October 28, 2018. Additional research for this episode was provided by Anna Haridos and Ellen Beam. Our artwork comes courtesy of Brian Kim. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Until next time, be excellent to each other.